You're listening to Film School, broadcasting every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time at KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, and on the web at KUCI.org slash filmschool. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. Made on a modest budget and completely outside established studio channels, this is a business is a wry, absurdist comedy about a shipping clerk named Turtletob who starts his own business knowing only that he intends either to create a product or to provide a service, and whichever one it is, he pledges it'll be good for everyone. With us today is Tom Stern, the director, co-writer, and producer of This is a Business. Tom Stern, welcome to Film School. Thanks for having me, guys. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, thank good, you. Good, good. You're up in uh, Toluca Lake, one of my, my favorite old haunts. Yeah, I love it up here. It's good. It's, you can get down into the city, but you can also get out of the city. Yeah. Are you near the kind of the smokehouse Bob's yeah. Big Boy area? Or? Near there, yeah. It's yeah. Up, up the street and around the corner. That's, oh, the, really? that's the fork in the road there, isn't yeah. it? Right where exactly. the, I'm right near the fork. Oh, there you go. Yeah, my father used to work at the smokehouse. Oh, really? And, yeah, and he made uh, salads for Frank Sinatra. So, wow. Yeah, that, that's, that's what I'm thinking. designation. Yeah, 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 that was it. Yeah, right there. that was it. Salads for Frank Sinatra. That's a niche, <laughs> niche It's a niche market. <laughs> What got you inspired to make such an absurdist comedy as uh, This is a Business? Well, I mean, I'm always writing and always working on different things. And uh, my brother and I, who my brother produced it with me and co-wrote the screenplay with me, were looking for something that we could make and could make on the cheap. I started writing uh, in prose a story about essentially three guys in a room. And I said to my brother, hey, I think I have an idea we can make on the cheap. He said, great, three guys in a room. Let's do it. <laughs> it has Blockbuster written all over it. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, what made you decide to take on just what it is that makes up a business? I don't necessarily know, um, because to me, it's sort of incidental that it is a business. To mm-hmm. me, it's more about a guy who tries to make something meaningful yeah. uh, out of his life, uh, tries to create something meaningful to him. And so for me... The metaphor just kind of turns that way, but it's really essentially about the difficulty or the sort of absurd consequences that result whenever you try to set out to do something that you think should be a certain way or that should be meaningful. Yeah, I I was picking up uh, political campaign stuff out of it, probably because I'm involved in politics to some extent. But when you try to bring meaning to something of anything, Mm -hmm. and some of the lines in there rang uh, true as far as some of the campaign's talk about hope right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I flatter myself to think that ideas are in there that are operating on a certain level that they could be expanded out to uh-huh. politics or art or... I've had a lot of people, you know, suggest that it's a film about filmmaking because of how difficult it is to make a film and how absurd it is to make a film as well. So I would welcome all such comparisons. Okay, good. <laughs> how did you uh, run into Nathan Nolan, who plays the lead character, Turtletop? Is, did you have auditions for this, or was this somebody you knew and you were writing for? No, we, we auditioned. Um, we basically went through that hateful process of seeing a hundred times the number of people that you actually need to cast. Nathan just came in. I believe he sent in a headshot. It might have been through a casting website or something. And uh, he actually originally came in to read for the role of Baltimore. Oh. And uh, Jason Corey, one of the other producers on the on the film, 
during Nathan's audition, made a note that he thought perhaps Nathan would be good for Turtle Tub, and I, I'm glad he did because I had it had never even occurred to me. And so, yeah, I just found him that way and cast him through that. Rick, is it? Uh, Rick Shaffo. Shaffo, yes, yeah. who plays Baltimore. I, I, I'm trying to, when you said that, I'm trying to switch their roles, and I'm really glad it came out the way it did. I, I have no idea how they have done reversing the roles, but I thought Rick Shaffo did a great job as Baltimore. Was, was that also just through a, a series of uh, auditions? Yeah, it was. It's. I, I too am glad that that panned out that way because I, I. I love Nathan's performance. I really love all the performances, but Rick's performance is the performance that seems to resonate most with people. We had originally been looking for younger people for the Baltimore role. Baltimore was the last role that we cast, and we we kept on extending extending out the auditions that we were doing to try to find somebody for that role, and we reached a point where we decided, okay, well. Maybe he doesn't have to be young. Maybe he can be older. We started looking across all possible ethnicities, across all possible ages. Rick, I believe, through a casting website, sent us his headshot, and we brought him in, and he started to read. Both of the other producers instantaneously knew that that was was Baltimore, and I needed about 24 hours, in part, I believe, simply because I'd seen so many damn Baltimores at that (laughs) point in time. Yeah, yeah. It was a perfect fit from from there on, and uh, I've since done some work, some short stuff as well, which which we've used Rick in because he's fantastic. Well, well, it really flips the dynamic because with Turtle Tub being younger, it's just sort of a wide-eyed naivete enthusiasm that drives a lot of what he seems to be about. And with Baltimore, you've got somebody who's been around, mm-hmm. and it kind of it does change. And, and knows how to sell absolutely nothing. Yeah, it knows exactly his ability to sell absolutely nothing is quite quite striking in this so that's very very well done yeah thank you something about rick's performance as well makes it believable enough that he would do that 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 you can sort of stay in the story and i agree the juxtaposition of those characters i think all three are they sort of have such different qualities and similar qualities that it does sort of accentuate the the naivete of turtle top yeah we've left out Henry Vega, mm-hmm. who plays Ernesto, the same deal with him through through uh, auditions, I imagine. Did you always decide to go with an Ernesto character? Did you want to get someone who was Mexican? Yes, originally the plan from the start. The only difference between the Ernesto that was on the page and the Ernesto that wound up uh, in the actual film was that uh, we originally wanted Ernesto to wind up with a pompadour. Uh, he has sort of a transformation in the movie where he changes hairstyles, and we, we went a different route. But other than that, that character was actually really pretty close to what we wound up with. The older the age ranges become, the harder it, it is to find a plethora of actors, uh, especially when it is as particular as looking for a, a Hispanic or Mexican man in his you know 50s or whatever. So we, we looked at a bunch. We were down to just a couple and, and wound up with Henry based on really just sort of a moment in his audition. He, As I watched the tapes over and over again, he just sort of transitioned into in just brief moments that character and really kind of hit it because in actuality, Henry is probably the most chatty and, and uh, I say this lovingly, but sort of anxious man that you'll ever meet. So <laughs> it was a real transition, a real sort of shift for him to become so sort of docile mm-hmm. and reticent. Yeah, and, and yet one of the wisest ones there, too. I think he was, his character, at least 
came up with the insights that the the other two didn't have. A couple of which we can't say over the years. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and this, yeah, you don't you don't necessarily expect it from him, but yeah, he he does. Having taken the film to some festivals and having screened it in different places and universities and stuff, uh, it's interesting that the sort of split. There seem to be Baltimore people, and there seem to be Ernesto people. And, <laughs> and the Ernesto people love Ernesto. When we were in uh, Portugal with the film, we, we played at a festival in Lisbon, and there was a, a, another filmmaker who was there who was an Italian gentleman who spoke very little English. And uh, after he saw our film, I kept seeing him at different events, and he would just come up to me and stare at me and just say, Ernesto. <laughs> <laughs> This is a film that you can kind of pick out some influences, and at least when I'm watching it, it feels there's a, a tradition, sort of this absurdist comedy tradition. What are your influences? Who are the people that have influenced you as a filmmaker, and did they have an impact on the writing and, and production of this film? I'll be interested in seeing who you think they are, but um, <laughs> my biggest influence probably is Hal Hartley, okay. who is... Uh, in my humble opinion, not as recognized as he ought be, but uh, is that Henry's Fool, is Henry that... Fool, and yeah. Trust. Trust. Uh, yeah. He recently did Faye Grimm and and a yeah. film called No Such Thing, which is a fantastic film. Yeah. He's a you know an auteur filmmaker in sort of the truest sense. He uses certain speech rhythms and he uses certain choreography of the camera and choreography of the blocking, which are really influential on me. I can't necessarily put my finger on why. Uh, because I, I'm told that apparently a lot of those things are highly stylized, but, but they seem very naturalistic to me, as strange as that might seem. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's a big influence on me. Woody Allen is a big influence on me. Errol Morris is a big influence well, on me. Is. I'm also a fan of your Wes Anderson and mm-hmm. Cohen Brothers and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Well, who are you going to say, Mike? No, I just, it, there is a little bit of Jarmish in this to me. I get that, yeah. yeah just fact, because, because... As strange as it is, when we first started watching, you know, when you experience the moment of watching the scenes being recorded on, on the monitor, and there's that discrepancy between what you thought would happen and what's happening, there were moments where I thought it felt almost like a Jarmish film. Because me. you let the dialogue play out, and then there's silence. You didn't cut away to things, which traditionally or more, more often filmmakers will do you let you let these things sink in and well and there were the, the blackouts between the scenes which might have reminded you of stranger than paradise That's we're yeah. speaking with uh, tom stern the movie is this is a business we were talking about the actors i i do want to mention uh, clementine mm-hmm. liz macy yeah liz macy yeah yeah does someone in your family gift wrap? <laughs> no, actually they don't. In fact, uh, that's a nice. The, if you growing up, the the presents that my mother wrapped were quite sad. Okay, um, <laughs> because uh, this character wraps just about. She's she's practicing to be the best gift wrapper in the world. Well, and, she she says yeah. at the beginning, and correct me if I'm wrong in this, Tom, that she basically is find, trying to find a way to distinguish herself from the other wrappers. <laughs> At the at the store that she works at, is it, am I saying that correctly? Yeah, that, that's correct. And, and she's, she's also, in, in I believe, this... trying to get to full time status, which yep, is difficult because it, the seasonal know. employment is is where the uh, it's it's tough to rush A lot of laughter for me in this film, but I've I've got to say there were some moments when uh, a turtle top's trying to maybe unwrap the notepad and the pen or <laughs> yeah. or you're looking mm-hmm. at at the uh, dining room and the picture framed on the wall is is gift wrap. Yeah, I yeah, I agree there's the f- a, a lot of that sort of planned path stuff. The the gift wrap thing was something that was not even in the original story. Uh, uh it was something that 
Uh, I believe when I initially told my brother, three guys in a room, let's make it, he, he started trying to mine for some more information on the story. <laughs> and I explained it's about a guy who makes a business that isn't really a business, and he hires uh, an assistant and a salesman who's selling things that's really nothing. And my brother looked at me and said, well, I think the guy should have a, a wife who, who's a professional gift wrapper. And I said, yes, yeah. absolutely. Um, and from there, it kind of gave us, it gave us a nice counterpoint where you got to see a side of Turtle Top you otherwise didn't get yeah, to see. Right, right. There was something very sweet, too, in the dynamic of her naivete and his naivete. But, but that sort of support, that sort of unrelenting or undying support that's just important in a way. From there, it was just a matter of picking interesting things to gift wrap. Well, and then, and then, of course, uh, to me, their their relationship seemed well. You said naive, but she seems to be asleep during quite a bit of the the conversations that yeah. they, they have, uh, which I thought <laughs> yeah, that was too kind of embarrassed fun. To, to actually admit these problems, or, or probably not so much embarrassed as worried that that it would worry her, uh-huh. but uh, needs to talk to her nevertheless. nevertheless so, yeah, yeah. He is sort of a motif going through is his talking to her while while she sleeps. One of my favorite scenes that we shot, actually, which did not wind up in the movie, was a scene between them where he shows her the space for the first time. And uh, the the noise through the vent starts. That's the reveal the first time that the noise starts streaming through the the vent up top. And, yeah, a a moment where, where he gets really frustrated and frazzled by it, and she just insists upon everything going everything's going to be fine everything's going to be great mm, okay is there any uh, autobiographical stuff in this film yes in a sense that most of the stuff that i do uh, is sort of personal to me in the sense that uh i'm far too shy to ever directly say i am this or that or the other but uh it's always sort of grounded for me in a in a type of reality that uh, that is very personal and mm-hmm. and really those are usually the films that I love the most, films that I, I can see the fingerprints of the makers on, films that, uh, that, that seem very human, very accessible. Um, and so that, that is sort of what I was, was shooting for in it. And it's also something that, that seems a hallmark of a lot of first features that I love. You know, and you were talking about like a film like Stranger Than Paradise. Films like that to me are very, um, very much the product of the people that make them. And I know that in film speak, that's supposed to be heresy, but uh, I love that. I, I really do. Well, just yeah. in, in that, in a personal personal level, two filmmakers that you identified really, I remember vividly seeing uh, Stranger. In Paradise, and then also uh, Blood Simple. Those those were two films that when I saw them, I, I really, it, you know, every once in a while you see a movie that you are just completely taken by. Mm-hmm. And and uh, the Coens and, and uh, Jarmish were two of them. Well, we're speaking with Tom Stern. The movie is This Is a Business. You know, the one thing I was thinking, thinking about personal was, uh, well, you have Jews for Jesus. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And... and uh, one of the main reasons is uh, that he's hearing him through the vents mm-hmm. is because uh, he can't block his vent up. Otherwise, it gets to be a, in, very hot in the room. Mm-hmm. And he shares the thermostat with the office next door. Mm-hmm. Now, I didn't have Jews for Jesus, but I had everything else going on yeah. in, in, a, in a particular office space that I was in. So I, I completely <laughs> related to that. Did these, these ideas just come uh, from thinking about, okay, I got a room. It needs ventilation. It doesn't have any windows. 
uh, or or did you did you have some experiences with that too? Jews, Jesus, and uh, and noisy vents. Up until my my present residence, which I'm grateful for, I do fancy myself the possessor of horrendous luck when it comes to extraneous noise in my living circumstances. But uh, <laughs> it, it it was a combination of things as well. One of the um, and I guess it goes back to the question about the personalization of all of it. But uh, one one of the impetuses. What's the plural for impetus? Impetai. Impetai. (laughs) One of the impetuses for the film was sort of direct in the way that I was in a building and which was renting units and uh, walked into one of the units just sort of haphazardly, and it was a tiny little room with a vent in the ceiling, and they had, I believe, a gym underneath. And there, you could hear the music, the thumping coming through. Yeah. And at that time, I also was living underneath one of the worst neighbors I could imagine anybody could ever have. And so that, that idea of the sort of infringing nature of other people's noises and sounds and the sort of disregard that those things have for the desire to try to focus and to try to work on something and try to figure something out, that sort of discord that exists. Yeah, it's definitely something that's that that's directly a part of my uh, lived yeah. experience, and so found its way in. Well, good. Now, was was this shot in Toluca Lake? No. Well, actually, strangely enough, the majority of it was shot in a building that uh, we were fortunate enough that my brother was is still, but was at the time as well, working for a company that that owned this building, mm-hmm. and so they gave us a floor of it. They're kind enough to give us a floor of it, which is one of the things that allowed us to actually make the film. Um, and so we then built an office space in an office space. But that aside, um, the building is actually, out of pure coincidence, on the other side of the building that I now live in, which is, huh. yeah, up in <laughs> North Hollywood, Toluca Lake area. So wow. the dumpster to my current building is in one of the scenes in the movie. Gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> well, I want to uh, just shift a little bit. Now, obviously, this is a family affair, a lot of the... Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of the production, uh, your, your producers, I assume, Daniel Stern. Yeah, Daniel and Daniel he, Stern's my brother. And then who wrote the music? I believe you have a... Billy Stern, my younger brother. There you who go. Is a brilliant, brilliant, very talented musician. And uh, he records uh, these storybook albums, that, and he does sort of picture albums with them. Mm-hmm. And he's a hobo, really. He travels around the country, rides the rails, and taught himself basically every instrument under the sun. Well, terrific. So there were some good things about working with your family and then there's some not so good things or did this all go, did everything work as well as you'd hoped? Um on the family end it actually worked surprisingly well. Perfect. Uh there were don't get me wrong, horrendous things about the process of making <laughs> the film in general, but I don't know that any of them were necessarily family-based. It actually worked out far better than I ever imagined. Well, for an independent filmmaker to have that, that network of support is, is uh, obviously an important thing. Your film is being distributed. It can be seen. Uh, this is sort of the new way of seeing film. Well, let's talk a little bit about IndiePix and, and what they're trying to accomplish. IndiePix is a, it's a great company. It's, uh, the website is IndiePix.net. Is I believe one way you can get there. The distribution landscape for indie films is difficult because the film has to be at a certain budgetary level or involves certain ta- a talent of certain uh, recognition level in order to make it sort of a viable economic option to bigger companies. And the smaller companies are really bigger companies for the most part nowadays. So. 
we, you know, took the, it took us a year, basically, taking the film all over the place to different distributors, and finally wound up with Indie Picks. And Indie Picks really understood where independent filmmakers were coming from. They understood, to us, it's about get it out there, get, it, get the product out there, make it a high-quality product, and, and get it available. Um, whereas a lot of other places, it seemed like there were going to be these exorbitant um, advertising fees, and there were going to be these exorbitant, the splits were going to be terrible and, and not filmmaker-friendly. Um, and so, yeah, Indie Picks uh, does a great deal where they, they sort of are very respectful of the product, first and foremost. Uh, they didn't just take it and run with it. They worked on, you know, getting it onto DVD and, and doing the key art with us and uh, kept us involved. And then uh, economically also created a situation which was beneficial to both of us. That's so. fantastic. Yeah. And, just, and just, you just, can download the film, yeah. too, from IndiePix. Which exactly, is the other. yeah. You can download uh, VOD. You can buy it on DVD. And uh, I think they're also in the process of working to, to get the film at, at some other places where you can do online rentals of it and things of that nature. It's IndiePix, IndiePixFilms.com. Dot com is where how I yeah. have it. Yeah, but you can do IndiePix.net or you can do IndiePixFilms.com. And our page is IndiePixFilms.com slash This Is A Business. I just have one more question. Are you a visionless man? <laughs> <laughs> I, well, really, my question is, I, I love the dialogue in this film. Everything's very spared down, and, and uh, that, that's a, just a line out of it. The other one I really like is a well-spent second. Yeah. I, think, I think that's wonderful because sometimes it is just having a well-spent second that makes a, makes a life. Who are your influences in, in, in writing the script for this? It's hard to pin one down. I studied, as an undergrad, I, I studied philosophy. Um, and Well, there's the culprit. Exactly. Yeah. And so you, you read a lot of fantastic thinkers, and I had a fantastic philosophy professor who uh, basically did not let me rest and, and exposed me to as much as he possibly could in the... Where was this? Did you took philosophy? Eckerd College in St. Petersburg, Florida. Oh, very good. And, and who is the professor? He just needs to have his name out That's there. That's Professor Jim Getch. All and, right. And another great professor there is Professor Nathan Anderson, who's been really good for me as well, but Professor Jim Getch is the one that I studied with primarily. Well, that's Excellent. wonderful. Well, yeah. it's, it's, we all need uh, those kind of people in our lives. Um, Absolutely. Tom Stern, thank you so much. This is a terrific film. It's uh, This is a business. You can check it out. You can go to the, to our website, Film School website, or you can check it out at IndiePixFilms.com. Thank you for being here on Film School today. Thank you guys so much for having me. Pleasure talking to you. To learn more about Film School, listen to more interviews, or subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at KUCI.org slash Film School.